Well, next week we're going to be talking about the evidence for the resurrection. That's right, actual evidence. You can actually prove beyond a reasonable doubt using history and logic that Jesus rose from the dead. When people tell you there's no way to prove whether or not any religion is true, Christianity is the exception. We're invited to test whether or not it is true by examining the resurrection of Jesus. In next week's message, we'll be using the four gospels in the Bible as one of our historical sources. So we've spent the last three weeks explaining why those four gospels deserve to be trusted as valid historical sources. And today we're gonna have some fun by looking at the top 10 reasons we know the gospel writers told the truth. Today's message was heavily inspired by the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. It's another book I highly recommend if you're looking to get a start in general apologetics. But let's jump in with this. Number one, you can make this your first fill-in already and we'll unpack this. First reason we know the gospel writers were telling the truth is that the gospel writers include embarrassing details about themselves. They include embarrassing details about themselves. You will know this if you've read the Gospels. One of the ways historians can tell whether or not an author is telling the truth is to test what they say and write by what we call the criteria or the principle of embarrassment. And this principle is simple. It assumes that any personally embarrassing details that an author includes are probably true. Why? Because it's human nature to leave out the things that make us look bad. I mean, isn't that the truth? If we add anything bad, it's only to be self-deprecating so that people will think we're humble or funny, right? We don't actually run to share things that make us look bad by human nature. If you're a mature believer, you might do that because you realize it makes Jesus look good. But even that's going against your natural human nature. Now let me ask you, if you and your friends were inventing a story that you wanted to pass off as the truth, how would you choose to make yourself look in this story if you've got a blank slate? Would you make yourselves look like foolish, uncaring, faithless cowards who needed to be dressed down on several occasions? Of course not. And yet that's exactly what we find in the Gospels. The Gospel writers are either personally in the story close friends of those who were, were at a minimum, they were members of this new movement called Christianity, and and by embarrassing the founders of the faith, they would be making their own faith open to ridicule. And yet they include descriptions of the disciples of Jesus that portray them as as dim-witted. Multiple times, they don't even understand what Jesus is saying, or they claim that they do, and by the things they say, they make it clear that they don't. They don't even get it. They're portrayed at times as uncaring. They abandon Jesus in his hour of greatest need. They fall asleep when Jesus said, can you do this one thing, pray for me, on the night he's gonna be arrested. They don't, even though they had one job. Moreover, they make no effort to even give Jesus a proper burial. It's recorded that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the very court that had sentenced Jesus to die. They're portrayed as selfish. They're interested in how their relationship with Jesus is going to benefit them in heaven. What title are they gonna have? What rank are they gonna have? What stuff are they gonna get? They get rebuked. How's this for a dressing down? Peter gets called Satan by Jesus. And they're collectively rebuked by Jesus for being men of, quote, little faith. 
Worse still, Jesus once expresses his exasperation over the disciples by saying to them, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? The New Testament documents later record the apostle Paul rebuking Peter years after the resurrection when Peter is essentially the head of the Jerusalem church and as close to the head of the global church as they had at that time. Paul writes, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, if you're trying to build a religion and a faith, you don't record the fact that the headmost guy in the early church had to get taken to task by another apostle publicly because his theology was off. You don't put that sort of detail in. They're recorded as being cowards when Jesus is arrested, all but one of them desert him and John, the only one who doesn't, watches from a distance. The rest take off to save themselves. Peter denies even knowing Jesus three times after boldly declaring, I will never disown you. None of the disciples are present at the cross except for John and a group of brave women who are the first to show up at the empty tomb on the third day. The disciples are also portrayed as being doubters, despite being taught over and over by Jesus himself that he was planning on rising from the dead, the disciples don't believe Mary when she shows up and tells them that he's alive. And some of them even doubt he's alive after they see him alive. So just stop and think rationally for a minute. If you were alive 2,000 years ago and you were one of the gospel writers, would you include these embarrassing details if you were making up a gospel story? Would you write that one of the primary leaders was called Satan by Jesus, denied even knowing him three times, hid during the crucifixion, and then later on had to be corrected on his theology? Would you depict yourselves as uncaring, bumbling cowards and the woman whose testimony was not even admissible in court as the brave ones who stood by Jesus and later were first to the empty tomb? Would you admit that some of you doubted the very Son of God after he had proven himself risen to all of you? Of course not, because that's not how you set up your leaders with your gospel story. If your goals are things like power, admiration, and wealth, you build them up. You don't tear them down. What would they have done if they were making up the gospels? Well, they would have left out all their ineptness, their cowardice, the rebukes, the three denials, their theological problems, and they would have depicted themselves as heroic, bold believers who stood by Jesus through it all and who confidently marched to the tomb on Sunday morning right past the elite Roman guards to find the risen Jesus congratulating them on their unwavering great faith. The men who wrote it would also say that they then went and declared the risen Jesus to the woman and told them to fear not. And of course, if the story was made up, no disciple at any time would have been portrayed as doubting, especially after Jesus had risen from the dead. There's only one reason to include all these embarrassing personal details, and it's if you're willing to tell the truth, even if it makes you look bad. Second reason, write this down. The Gospels include embarrassing details and awkward sayings of Jesus. Hang with me and I'll unpack this. Embarrassing details and awkward sayings of Jesus. So remember, the conspiracy theory is this was made up to make this guy Jesus look like God when he really wasn't. That's the conspiracy theory. 
But the New Testament writers are also honest about Jesus. They don't just record incriminating details about themselves. They also record details about Jesus and things he said that could have easily created problems by being misunderstood. Just make a note of this. Jesus, the guy they are allegedly fraudulently trying to build up as a Messiah, is recorded in the Gospels as being thought, quote, out of his mind by his brothers and mother. In fact, when Jesus is teaching, they show up one day and they're there to like take him away. They're there to like put the straitjacket on him and be like, it's time to come home, Jesus. Yes, yes, you are a miracle worker. Like they're there to do that. It's written that he's not even believed in by his own brothers. I'm the Messiah. Sure, Jesus, that's great. Sure, sure. It's recorded that some people thought he was a deceiver. He was deserted by many of his followers. Another time he gave a teaching that, quote, upset Jews who had already believed in him. So he had a group of Jews who had started believing in him. Then he taught something they didn't like. And they got so mad with him they tried to stone him to death. Others accuse him of being a drunkard. Others accuse him of being demon-possessed. He gets called a madman. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a woman, which is an act that had the potential to be perceived as a sexual advance at the time. He's crucified by the Jews and the Romans, despite the fact that the law of God says anyone who's hung on a tree is under a curse from God, which of course he was. He was accursed because he was bearing the weight of our sin. Now, if your goal is portraying someone as God in the flesh, perfect and sinless, this is not a list of events, accusations, and quotations that you include in your made-up story. The list also didn't feed into the Jewish expectation at the time, which was that the long-awaited Messiah would show up and free them from political oppression, the Romans at that time. So really make sure you're tracking with me on this. If your goal is to invent a religion that people would be attracted to, in Israel, at that time in history, this is not the narrative that you would come up with. Even a fool could come up with a better narrative if you were inventing one from scratch and were simply trying to market it. Unless your goal is not to invent a religion, but to rather tell the truth, then you would include these kinds of information. In addition to embarrassing details about Jesus, there are several difficult things that Jesus says that are included in the Gospels. Again, not helpful if you're trying to invent a story and a religion. For example, according to the New Testament, Jesus declares, the Father is greater than I. Um, that creates some problems. What does that mean? Jesus even says that when it comes to his second coming, he doesn't even know when it's going to happen. Only the Father knows. He seems to deny his deity when he asks the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now there's a good explanation for that. Jesus was saying, you're implying that I'm God, but that can easily be misconstrued as though Jesus is saying he's not God. Jesus is seen cursing a fig tree for not having figs when it wasn't even the season for figs. And then it's recorded that he's only able to do a few miracles in his hometown because the people lack faith. If the New Testament writers wanted to prove to everyone that Jesus was God, then why didn't they just leave that stuff out? Why deal with those potential problems at all? Wouldn't they have wanted to be in your face about how supreme and powerful and God-like Jesus was? Even worse, the Gospels mention Jesus saying something that sounds completely morbid without context around it. It records in John 6:53 that Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, 
unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then even John, the writer of that gospel, says from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. It's not really a way to recruit followers to say something that could be misconstrued as advocating for cannibalism. It's generally not a good approach. This is the kind of thing that would turn people off today. Some of you still get nervous in the first song we sang, There's a Fountain. When we talk about the blood of Jesus, it's like, man, that's a little weird. That's a little bit weird. We're still weirded out by this stuff today. And the gospel records that people left him back then because they were so weirded out by it. It would be sabotaging to include something like that in a gospel story if it didn't actually happen. Therefore, it would seem to be authentic. And as I said, there's reasonable explanations for all these difficult sayings of Jesus, but it makes no sense that the gospel writers would add them if they were trying to pass off the lie as the truth. In fact, it doesn't make sense that they'd make up a character anything like Jesus, a beaten and bloodied, dying, crucified, sacrificial lamb. Jesus was the absolute antithesis of a human hero, the complete opposite of what you would expect. The best explanation is that the gospel writers weren't playing fast and loose with the truth. They were taking great pains to be extremely accurate in recording what Jesus actually said and did. Third reason we can trust the gospel writers as being truthful. The gospels include demanding sayings of Jesus. The gospels include demanding sayings of Jesus. If you study cults and recently invented religions around the world, you'll find plenty that personally benefited the movement's founder or founders. Even today, it's not uncommon to hear about cults that are started by men so that they can have multiple wives, marry underage teenage girls, or engage in bizarre sexual activity. We know why they're doing it. It's no mystery. They just want to indulge their human lusts and desires. But what we find in the gospel writers, however, is just the opposite. They include teachings from Jesus that only made their lives more difficult because they called us to live to a higher sacrificial standard than any of us would naturally want to. Just take the Sermon on the Mount. Just in that one message, Jesus says things like this. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Or how about this one? Be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Or do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And finally, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
All of these things are difficult or completely impossible for human beings to live up to, and they seem to go against the most natural interests of the men who wrote them. None of those are things that we long to do and need to invent a religion so that we have permission to do them. They're things that we struggle to do, that we don't naturally want to do. The world back then was, was very similar to ours in this regard. There always have been and always will be a large number of people who want a spiritual expression. They want to belong to some spiritual movement, but they want it to place no moral demands on them, right? The big one in Vancouver is this weird fusion that everybody loves here of new ageism with Buddhist meditation and all these things, and all these spiritual seeming practices and buzzwords, but when you look through it, you find that the reason so many people love it is because it puts no moral demands on them. What you need to do is just be true to yourself, which is really just code for do whatever seems right to you in the moment. Wow, how can I live up to such a lofty standard as doing the very thing that I most want to do moment to moment? I just don't know if I can do that. Oh, yes, I can. Yes, I can. It was the same way back then as it is right now. So keeping that in mind, just consider how extreme these commands really are. If thinking about a sin is sinful, then everyone, including the gospel writers, is sinful. If you're starting a cult, you want to make yourself sinless or at least much less prone to sin than your followers because that's how you make them admire you. But by this standard, even the gospel writers are sinners too. It puts such stringent standards for divorce and, and, and remarriage, it sort of seems to take out their get out of jail free card. At that time in Jewish culture, they could have divorced their wife if they got sick of her because she oversalted the eggs, made them angry and caused them to sin. My wife's causing me to sin, I got to split. That's how the world was back then. But now they record this standard where it's like, no, no, you need to stick together if it's at all possible. To not fight back against the insults of an evil person is to resist your, your basic human nature, your fight or flight syndrome. Now factor into that reality, this is the big part. Not only do they say love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Understand that when these gospels were written, the church was literally being persecuted. People were being fed to lions. They were being burned at the stake. They were being killed for their faith. And in that environment, they record that Jesus said, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, pray for those who persecute you. Doesn't make sense from a human perspective. Goes far beyond any ethic ever taught and commands kindness where hate and bitterness naturally wells up within us. To not live with the goal of accumulating financial wealth goes against the desire that we all still have to this day to have as much earthly security as possible. To be perfect is impossible for, for anybody. To not judge unless our own lives are in order goes against our natural tendency to make ourselves feel better by looking at other people who are worse off than us, right? There's no motive. There's no benefit for the disciples to make these kinds of things up. They're just pointing out the fact that they're sinners and they can't live up to the standards of God. Only a perfect person could live up to these standards. And perhaps that was exactly the point. Fourthly, the gospel writers make it clear what Jesus actually said. The gospel writers make it clear what Jesus actually said. Even though quotation marks did not exist in first century Greek, the gospel writers, the way they laid out the written accounts of the gospels made it very obvious what Jesus said and what he did not say. That's why if you buy a red letter Bible today where the words of Jesus are in red, ink, 
they're all pretty much going to have Jesus saying the same things in the same places because it's really easy to tell in the manuscripts where Jesus was talking. Side note, I don't really believe in red letter Bibles. Anybody know why? Because Jesus wrote the whole Bible. That's exactly right. There you go. They're like, the words of Jesus are in red. I'm like, he wrote the whole thing. How does that work? So, So what does this have to do with the Gospels being trustworthy? Well, as we mentioned in some of our earlier studies in this series, it would have been really easy when the Gospel writers were writing the Gospels 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after the life of Jesus to solve some problems that had come up in the early church by just slipping in some extra information, you know? Something like, oh yeah, I remember what Jesus said about women in leadership in the church. Or, or, or some of these issues that had become contentious at the time would have been so easy to solve them by just adding in some extra sayings of Jesus. Or some things to make it more appealing when John wrote his gospel, most likely close to the end of the first century. Why not just slip in a couple of things there for evangelism purposes, you know? Something specifically to followers of Zeus or Jupiter or something like that. But they don't do that. Nothing gets added in that would have benefited them at that time. All there are are these things that make their life more difficult because it's the standard that Jesus presents that's so hard to live up to. The gospel writers keep the words of Jesus, the words of Jesus. They don't blur the lines between their thoughts and the words of Jesus. Fifthly, the New Testament writers include resurrection details that they would not have invented. Resurrection details they would not have invented. So they add embarrassing details about themselves, potentially embarrassing details about Jesus, difficult sayings. They also record events related to the resurrection that make no sense to invent. So these include, and we hinted at this already, the burial of Jesus. The New Testament writers record, all four gospels do, that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish ruling religious council that got together to execute the conspiracy that got Jesus crucified. This is not an event they would have made up. There was extreme bitterness among many of the early Christians against the Jewish religious authorities for crucifying Jesus. And yet despite that, the gospel writers put in this member of the Sanhedrin and put him in a very favorable light because he became a believer. Why would they put Jesus in the tomb of a Jewish religious authority? If Joseph didn't really bury Jesus, then the story would have been really easily exposed as fraudulent by the Jewish enemies of Christianity. If Joseph of Arimathea hadn't really put Jesus in his tomb, the Jewish religious leaders would have just said, here's Joseph to reveal the fact that this is all a lie, and he didn't really bury Jesus. But but that never happened, because he was named, and he really did place the body of Jesus in his tomb. Also, the first four witnesses, they wouldn't have invented this. All four gospels record women as the first witnesses at the empty tomb and the first to learn of the resurrection. One of those women is Mary Magdalene, who Luke records was formerly demon-possessed. That's not the kind of detail about a key witness that you add into a makeup story to make it more convincing. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I got a witness who saw everything. Side note, they used to be demon-possessed but their story's totally solid. You you, you don't do that because it would seem to hurt the reputation of the witness on a surface level rather than enhance it. Not only that, but, but women were not considered 
reliable witnesses in the patriarchal society of first century Israel. In fact, a woman's testimony held no weight in a court of law. So if you're making up a resurrection story in the first century, you would avoid female witnesses and you would make yourselves the brave men, the witnesses to discover the resurrected Jesus in the empty tomb. But mentioning the testimony of woman, especially a demon-possessed woman formerly in her life, would seem to only hurt your attempts to pass off a lie as the truth. They wouldn't have made up the conversion of priests. Some people ask, why didn't Jesus appear to the Pharisees after his resurrection and be like, told you, called it. One is I'm like, because Jesus is more classy than we are, that's one reason, but theologically we know that Jesus only chose to reveal himself after the resurrection to people who loved him. The the evangelism part of his ministry was done. He only appeared after his resurrection to people who loved him and was only touched by the hands of people who loved him. But practically the reason Jesus didn't appear to the Pharisees might be that it simply wasn't necessary. It's often overlooked, but the book of Acts tells us that many priests in Jerusalem did become believers. Luke writes in Acts chapter six, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You see, that's a detail that Luke wouldn't have included if it were fiction. Well, why? Because everyone would have known he was a fraud if there weren't actually a large number of priests in Jerusalem who had converted to Christianity. And then that would have disproven Luke's entire gospel account. Theophilus, who he wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke too, and all the other first century readers would have known or could have easily found out if Luke was lying. And the Pharisees would have known too, and they would have pointed it out to everyone. Not true, none of us actually became Christians, but that didn't happen. Pharisee conversion and Joseph of Arimathea are two unnecessary details that if they were untrue, created the risk of blowing Luke's story completely out of the water. There's no reason for him to include them if it's not true. And the Joseph story wouldn't have only blown the cover of Luke, but of every other gospel writer because the gospels all tell the same burial story. They wouldn't have made up the explanation of the Jews for the empty tomb. This is what the last chapter of Matthew tells us. It says, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. It's talking about the situation that unfolded after Jesus rose from the dead and came out, and the the, the soldiers were all knocked out by the glory of God, and, and, and how did this all happen? And the Pharisees decided, no, you guys can't tell everybody that Jesus just just disappeared. So tell them you fell asleep, and if you get into trouble with your bosses, we'll bribe your bosses so that you guys don't get executed. And then Paul says, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So again, Matthew makes it easy for anyone to verify whether or not he's telling the truth. Is that the story of the day or not? The readers would have known. The only plausible explanation is that the tomb must have really been empty. And the Jewish enemies of Christianity 
must have really been circulating that explanation in the first century. In fact, Justin Martyr and Tertullian, writing in AD 150 and AD 200 respectively, claim that the Jewish authorities continued to offer this explanation for the empty tomb well into the second century. Number six, the Gospels identify at least 17 historically confirmed people. Historically confirmed people, 17 of them. They can't have been fabricated stories because they include far too many historically confirmed characters. The gospel writers would have blown their credibility with the readers of the day by naming real people in a fictional story, especially people of great power and notoriety. There's no way they could have gotten away with telling outright lies about people like Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, and the entire Herodian bloodline. Somebody would have exposed them for falsely implicating these people in events that never happened. The gospel writers knew this and they wouldn't have included so many important real people in a fictional story if the intention was to deceive. The best explanation, again, is that the gospel writers accurately recorded what they saw. Otherwise, somebody who worked for one of those guys would have said, these guys are telling false stories about you and some made-up Jesus guy in some court that never happened. But that never happened. Everyone who's named in the Gospels really existed and really participated as described in the Gospels. Number seven, we've talked about this before. The Gospels include divergent details, divergent details. We talked about this last week, how eyewitnesses always provide slightly different testimonies because they're unique individuals who notice different specific things. They see the same event from different perspectives. And as we said, to this day, law enforcement investigators know that if they have a group of witnesses who all give exactly the same story, it's an indication of collusion, meaning they got together and pre-planned their story. Because in real life, eyewitnesses who saw the same event see it slightly differently and notice slightly different things. Similarly, while the Gospels contain no contradictions, they do contain variations or divergent details in a way that makes it clear that the Gospel writers didn't get together and smooth out the details of the history. The fact that there are divergent details in the Gospels proves that they wrote from their own personal recollections. And it certainly means they weren't trying to pass off the lies the truth. If they were, they would have smoothed out all those variations. Why create the problem at all? For example, if three news sources carry a story about a presidential visit to a foreign country, all the stories will identify the country, but they may emphasize minor details. If one account says the president visited the prime minister of England, and the other says the president visited the prime minister in a room with marble columns, those two accounts don't contradict each other. They're complementary. One adds to the other. In the same way, all the gospel accounts agree on the most important facts, and the most important fact, Jesus rose from the dead. They just have different complementary details. And it's madness when they all say Jesus rose from the dead to do the equivalent of saying, yeah, yeah, but one of them says he was wearing sneakers and one of them says he was wearing flip-flops. He rose from the dead. That's the part you're supposed to care about. And even if you could find 
and you won't be able to, but if you could find some minor details between the Gospels that flat out contradict each other, it still wouldn't prove that the resurrection is fiction. It might present a problem for the doctrine that the Bible is without error, but it wouldn't mean that the major events didn't happen. Simon Greenleaf was a a Harvard law professor who wrote the standard study on what constitutes legal evidence. So what counts as legal evidence in a court of law? And he credited his own conversion to Christianity as having come from careful examination of the gospel accounts. If anyone knew what made legitimate eyewitness testimony, it was this guy, Simon Greenleaf. He concluded that the four gospels, quote, would have been received in evidence in any court of justice without the slightest hesitation. The bottom line is this. Agreement on the major points and divergence on the minor details is the nature of all eyewitness testimony. And it's the very nature of the gospel accounts as well. Number eight, the New Testament writers presented verifiable facts in their day even regarding miracles. They presented verifiable facts in their day, even regarding miracles. Throughout the New Testament, the writers present gospel claims that their readers would have been able to personally verify in their day. I don't know if you remember when you were in school and there was the one guy who was like, oh yeah, yeah, I've got a, I've got a girlfriend. You guys don't know her, because why? She goes to another school. She goes to another school, you know? And you'd be like, dude, dude, what's her name? Blendy. Her name's Blendy. Blendy, yes. Beautiful brown hair. What, what, what grade is she in? Eight. Eight, you know. You press for these details so that you could go and expose the fact that they had a fictional made-up girlfriend. It's like, no, here's a picture of her. You'd be like, can I see the back of it? It's cut out of a magazine. That actually happened with one of my friends. That was a, a thing you'd do. Picture in the wallet cut out of a magazine or something like that. It's like a Maybelline printed ad or something like that. That's strange. And she sure is excited about that lipstick. But no, all right, cool. The thing is, if, if you're trying to pass off a lie, as, a lie as the truth, you don't include bits of information that the other person could use to go check whether or not your story is true. I had the most delicious pizza at the Pizza Hut on Loheed in Maple Ridge at seven o'clock and I sat in the corner booth. You don't present that if you're lying because somebody could actually go and check that out. If you wanna lie, you wanna keep the details as foggy as possible so they can't actually go and verify whether your story's true or false. The gospel writers include all kinds of stuff that people could have checked out at the time they wrote the gospels, meaning it would have been easy for somebody to expose them as a fraud if they were. And believe me, if you haven't figured it out from the gospel accounts, if the Jewish religious leaders could have exposed them as frauds, they would have done it. They would have loved to do that. So check out these examples. In the opening four verses of Luke's gospel, he claims that Theophilus can go and check this all out and verify that what he's writing is true. Peter claims in his epistle of 2 Peter that the apostles, quote, did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter says, you can talk to me or any of the other apostles. We were eyewitnesses to the glory of Jesus. When Paul is brought before Festus and King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul says, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, who was right there, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. 
For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. So in other words, Paul says to King Agrippa, you know that I'm telling the truth because all of this happened in front of you. You know there was Jesus here. You know there was a trial. You know he was crucified on Passover. You know there was an uproar in a city because you were here when it all happened. And then we have Paul restating an early creed that identified more than 500 witnesses of the risen Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says most of them are still alive. They're up in Nazareth, in Galilee. Go talk to them. Hundreds of them are still there. In addition, Paul makes another claim to the Corinthians that he wouldn't have made unless he was telling the truth. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul declares that he had previously performed miracles for them. When he's speaking of his own qualifications as an apostle, someone who speaks for God, Paul reminds the Corinthian church, quote, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So Paul couldn't have said that to the Corinthians in his second letter to them unless he had actually done it, right? He can't write them a letter saying, remember all the signs and wonders and miracles that I performed in front of you to prove that I was an apostle of Jesus? He couldn't have made that claim unless he had actually done that. Otherwise, they would have just laughed him out of their church. The only plausible conclusion is that Paul really was an apostle of God. Therefore, he really had the ability to prove his apostleship by performing miracles And he had displayed this ability to the Corinthian church in the past. You don't add details that people can actually check out if you're trying to pass off the lie as the truth. Number nine, the Gospels describe miracles like other historical events with simple, unembellished accounts. Unembellished accounts. I'm going to predict an average of three glances at the screen for the word unembellished on this one. Unembellished accounts. You do have to know it makes me nervous when the fill-in is a four-letter word like said, and I see some of you like looking at the screen multiple times. I'm like, did you guys go to school? Everybody okay? <laughs> You're like, there's no autocorrect on my outline. I don't know what I'm doing. Embellished and extravagant details are always a strong sign that a historical account has some legend mixed into it. For example, there's a legendary account of Jesus' resurrection that was written more than 100 years after the event. It's one of those apocryphal forgeries we've been talking about over the last few weeks known as the Gospel of Peter. This is what the fraudulent Gospel of Peter says. It says, early in the morning, as the Sabbath dawned, there came a large crowd from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to see the sealed tomb. But during the night before the Lord's day dawned, as the soldiers were keeping guard two by two in every watch, there came a great sound in the sky, and they saw the heavens open, and two men descend shining with a great light, and they drew near to the tomb. The stone which had been set on the door rolled away by itself and moved to one side, and the tomb was open, and both of the young men went in. Now when these soldiers saw that, they woke up the centurion and the elders, for they also were there keeping watch." While they were yet telling them of the things which they had seen, they saw three men come out of the tomb, two of them sustaining the other one, like holding him up, and a cross following after them, hovering behind them. The head of the two they saw had heads that reached up to heaven, but the head of him who was led by them went beyond heaven. I I don't get that because that's implying you could see up to heaven and go, oh, that head goes further. And they heard a voice out of the heavens saying, have you preached unto them that sleep? And the answer that was heard from the cross was yes. 
That's how you make up a resurrection story. You've got large crowds. You've got flying, hovering stones. You've got heads of men stretching to heaven and beyond. There's even a walking and talking cross. I mean, the kid's cartoon of this is already made for you. You've got the cross character right there. How amazing. How embellished. The resurrection gospels are nothing like this. The gospels give matter-of-fact almost bland descriptions of the resurrection. Mark describes what the woman saw this way. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And while we don't have time to go through all the other accounts, Luke's description is almost as stark. John's gospel briefly mentions Mary Magdalene discovering the empty tomb adds Peter and John to the story, and then returns to Mary outside the tomb. Again, nothing embellished or extravagant in his account. Matthew's account of the woman's experience is more dramatic, but it contains nothing as bizarre as long heads or a walking and talking cross found in the Gospel of Peter. Now, if the resurrection were a made-up story designed to convince skeptics, then the Gospel writers surely would have made their accounts of the resurrection longer and more detailed. And surely they would have said that they personally witnessed Jesus physically rising from the dead, right? Surely they would have said we were there when the stone was rolled away and he got up off the stone slab. But instead they get to the tomb after he's risen and they make no attempt to dress up their account with grandiose descriptions of magic crosses. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, get this, they don't even make any dramatic theological implications about the resurrection. Do you realize this? When you read the Gospels, none of the Gospel writers actually say, and the reason it was such a big deal that Jesus rose from the dead was because of this. John actually only reports the implications of the resurrection in one verse in one sentence. This point about the theological restraint of the Gospel writers is really, really, really important because it indicates that they were most concerned about getting the history correct, not inventing some new kind of theology. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, that many of you will be familiar with, makes the astute observation that, and I put this quote on your outline, neither going to heaven when you die, life after death, eternal life, nor even the resurrection of all Christ's people is so much as mentioned in the four canonical resurrection stories. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wanted to tell stories whose import was Jesus is risen, therefore you will be too, they've done a remarkably bad job of it. So when you hear about things like eternal life in the Gospels, it's only recorded where Jesus spoke about it. But the Gospel writers don't go back and directly connect that at the resurrection to saying, this is the stuff Jesus was talking about, now you will live forever too which means that their primary focus was getting the history right, recording the things Jesus said when he said them, recording what happened at the resurrection when it happened at the resurrection. This is almost shocking when you think about it. 
Because the main theology isn't in the Gospels, it's in the epistles where they explain and expound upon the implications of the resurrection. The primary concern of the Gospels is accurate history, not theology. Now obviously the rest of the New Testament has major implications in explaining that theology and obviously the resurrection is the key to all Christian theology, but the point is it would have been so easy for the Gospel writers to add their theological thoughts But they didn't do that. They focused on the history. Their level-headedness is also on display in the 35 other miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. All of those miracles are recorded as if by reporters, not wild-eyed preachers. The Gospel writers don't offer flamboyant descriptions or fire and brimstone commentary, just the facts, just the facts. And point number 10, lastly, The apostles, including the New Testament writers, abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs and practices, adopted new ones, and did not deny their testimony under persecution or threat of death. They didn't deny their testimony under persecution or threat of death. You see, the New Testament writers don't just say that Jesus performed miracles and rose from the dead. They actually backed that testimony up with their own actions over the rest of their earthly lives. First, virtually overnight, all of these Jews abandoned many of their long-held, they'd been doing them their whole lives, sacred beliefs and practices. Among the 1,500-year-plus traditions that they give up overnight include the following, the system of animal sacrifices. It's now replaced by the singular sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The binding supremacy of the law of Moses, they now say it's powerless because Jesus has fulfilled it by the perfect life that he lived. They go from strict monotheism to now worshiping Jesus, the God-man and a trinity, despite the fact that their most cherished belief as Jews has always been the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And man worship had always been considered blasphemy and punishable by death, but now they're worshiping Jesus, God made flesh. The Sabbath, they no longer observe it, even though they've always believed that breaking the Sabbath is punishable by death. Instead of believing in a conquering Messiah, they believe in just the opposite, Jesus, a sacrificial lamb as Messiah, at least on his first visit. And it's not just the New Testament writers who do this. Thousands of Jerusalem Jews, including Pharisee priests, convert to Christianity and join the New Testament writers in abandoning these long-held and sacred beliefs and practices. J.P. Moreland helps us understand the magnitude of these devout Jews giving up their established institutions virtually overnight. The quotes on your outlines. He says, the Jewish people believed that these institutions were entrusted to them by God They believed that to abandon these institutions would be to risk their souls being damned to hell after death. Now a rabbi named Jesus appears from a lower class region. He teaches for three years, gathers a following of lower and middle class people, gets in trouble with the authorities and gets crucified along with 30,000 other Jewish men who are executed during this time period. But five weeks after he's crucified, Over 10,000 Jews are following him and claiming that he's the initiator of a new religion. And get this, they're willing to give up or alter all five of the social institutions that they've been taught since childhood. 
institutions that have such importance both sociologically and theologically. Something very big was going on. How do you explain these monumental shifts that the New Testament writers were making up a story? And I'm gonna say this multiple times. The after effects of the death of Jesus, even if you don't believe in his resurrection, the after effects are known, accepted, secular history. There's no serious historian on the planet who says, no, there was no explosion of Christianity in the years and decades following the time Jesus was supposedly on the earth. Everybody knows that happened. So how do you explain all this if it's a made up story? How do you explain that if the resurrection didn't occur? Second, not only do these new believers abandon their long-held beliefs and practices, they adopt some radical new ones, including Sunday, a work day, as the new day of worship. Baptism as a sign that one is part of this new covenant, just as circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. And communion as an act of remembrance for Jesus' sacrifice for their sins. Communion is especially inexplicable unless the resurrection is true. Because why would you make up a practice where symbolically you eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus? That's just weird if it's not true. Finally, in addition to abandoning all this stuff and adopting new ones, the New Testament writers suffer persecution and death when they could have saved themselves by simply recanting and saying, no, we made it up, it's not true. If they had made up the resurrection story, then surely they would have made their confession when they were about to be crucified as Peter was, stoned as James was, or beheaded as Paul was. But no one recanted. And 11 out of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith. Why would they die for a known lie? Chuck Colson, if you're younger, you might not know about this. If you're older, you will. Chuck Colson was a former aide at President Nixon, who's famous because he was the only American president, to my knowledge, to be impeached, or at least the most recent one to be impeached. But, you know, give it time. Give it time. Uh, <laughs> comparing his experience to that of the apostles, Chuck Colson wrote this. I, I think it's on your outline. I'm not sure. He said, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to the President. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the President about what was really going on. Two weeks! The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. Colson's right. The, the apostles surely would have cracked to save themselves if it was a lie. Just think about this. Peter had already denied knowing Jesus three times. So, I mean, he even had practice. He surely would have denied him after the resurrection if he knew the whole thing was made up. 
There's no reason to doubt and every reason to believe the New Testament accounts of the Gospels. Write this down because this answers the question. People will say, well, what about martyrs? There's Muslim martyrs today, but here's the thing. While many people will die for a lie that they think is truth, no sane person will die for what they know is a lie. You see, that's the difference. The guys blowing themselves up for ISIS, they really believe that Islam is true. But they're not really in a position to know that because Muhammad is dead. The disciples were actually in a position to know whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. They knew whether it was true or not. People die for causes all the time that they believe are true. But people don't die for things that they know aren't true. The New Testament writers and the other apostles knew for sure that Jesus had resurrected and they proved it by dying with that belief. Let me just ask you this, what more could an eyewitness do to prove that they're telling the truth? There's there's nothing more you could ask of them. Let me put it this way. As I mentioned earlier, I got that email from the flat earth guy. Do, Do you guys know that this is like becoming a big thing There's like multiple like NBA basketball players and people on the internet who actually believe that the earth is flat and there's a massive conspiracy to hide this from the public. Now I love a good conspiracy. I love me a good conspiracy. And an incredibly disturbing number of classic conspiracy theories have actually proven to be true over the last 10 years, right? Oh, they actually are listening to what you say all the time. Oh, that's really true. They are reading your emails, okay. But even if you're a conspiracy theorist, you realize that any credible conspiracy theory begins with what? A motive, a motive. You have to have someone or a group of people who stand to dramatically benefit from perpetuating the conspiracy. What makes it so stupid to believe that the earth is flat is who is getting wildly rich and powerful by hiding the fact that the earth is flat? Are the airlines saving a fortune on gas or something like that and they don't want people to know so they'd have to drop ticket price? I don't know, but I can't figure out a single way anybody benefits by hiding the fact that the earth is flat. That's why it's completely ridiculous. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, even more ridiculous than that is accusing the gospel writers and the apostles of making up a conspiracy around the resurrection of Jesus. Why is it so ridiculous? For the same reason, there's no motive. There's no motive whatsoever. Most of the first converts to Christianity were Jews. If you became a Christian, you would be immediately excommunicated from your synagogue. That meant you would be excommunicated from Jewish life. You lived in a Jewish country and no Jew would employ you. If your spouse hadn't converted, they would divorce you. All your friends would no longer talk to you. You would be cast out of social life, cast out of your work life, potentially cast out of your marriage, and scorned every day of your life. Almost immediately, a wave of persecution from the Romans came upon the church. Ten consecutive Caesars carried out a genocide against these Christians we haven't seen for millennia. They were lit on fire. They were burned in their homes. They were fed to lions in the Roman circus. They were enslaved and even worse things that I can't mention here. That's the atmosphere that the early church exploded and grew in. 
That's the atmosphere and that's the time in history when the gospels were written. None of the apostles became rich or powerful. Eleven of the twelve were martyred and they tried unsuccessfully to kill the twelfth who was John by boiling him alive in oil and then later leaving him to die on the barren island of Patmos. So the accusation that the resurrection of Jesus was a conspiracy invented by people who were motivated by wealth or power is ludicrous because it doesn't line up with what happened, with what secular history tells us happened. That's not how it played out. The church doesn't join with the state and become politically powerful until the time of Constantine in the early fourth century. The first 300 years of the church were just persecution and martyrdoms. Well, maybe the conspiracy just didn't work out, Jeff. Maybe it was just a bad conspiracy. Then don't you think they would have abandoned it? Or at a minimum, modified it in order to make their lives easier and make the persecution stop? Change what Jesus said so that they could do things like make a pinch offering to Caesar and not be persecuted and martyred? There's a couple of decades between the death of Jesus and the writing of some of the Gospels. Don't you think they would have changed their approach when they realized this wasn't working? But they didn't. Well, maybe they just wanted to feel a part of something spiritually special. You know, everyone likes that feeling of being a part of a special group, so they made it up. They were already Jews. Jews were a tiny minority who believed they were God's only chosen people living in God's only chosen country on earth. They already had hyper-exclusive culture, laws, and rituals. That spiritual itch had already been scratched. Well, maybe it was a positive peer pressure thing that, that made them hold the line to their deaths. We already heard from Chuck Colson how hard it is to keep a secret with just a few individuals. The apostles did it with 12, and the women. And there can't be such a thing as positive peer pressure when they're all martyred at different times on their own, many of them in wildly different geographic locations. They end up being martyred in places as far off as India, Rome, and Jerusalem. There's no such thing as positive peer pressure when you're not even together. And yet not one of them changes their story. Well, maybe they just really wanted to believe it was true. But the thing is, they didn't just say Jesus is alive because they want to believe that. They said, we saw him, we touched him, we spoke with him. They were actually in a position to know whether or not they were following the truth. They were in a position to know whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. And as we said, while people will die for something they think is true, Nobody will die for something they know is a lie. The gospel writers, the New Testament writers, the apostles had nothing to gain in this life by inventing a conspiracy about the resurrection of Jesus. They were persecuted. Most of them died alone across decades in different locations, saying to the very end, I I can't change my story because Jesus is alive. The only explanation that makes sense is that they couldn't deny the gospel because they knew it was true. Everybody needs to understand the explosion of Christianity, the persecution of the early church, the martyrdom of the apostles, 
These things are all accepted historical facts. If the resurrection's not true, what's the motive? And what's the motive 10 years later when they're being fed to lions? What's the motive 20 years later, 30 years later, 40, 50 years? What's the motive? How do you explain that kind of transformation and commitment? How do you explain 11 nobodies, uneducated men, from the sticks of Israel turning the world upside down? How do you explain the explosion of Christianity in the first century? How do you explain all these Jews suddenly accepting being ostracized from their own people and giving up the customs they had participated in devoutly for their whole lives? As I said, secular history is clear about the aftermath of the life of Jesus. If the skeptic will not accept Jesus as God, the skeptic has to provide an alternative explanation as to what the heck happened in the years and decades following the life of Jesus. But despite all this evidence against them, the skeptics will still have faith. Since the evidence makes it virtually impossible to conclude that Jesus was a legend and that the New Testament writers were liars, some skeptics will cling to the only remaining possibility. Perhaps the New Testament writers were deceived. Perhaps they sincerely thought Jesus had risen from the dead, but, but they were just sincerely wrong. That's what we're going to look at next week as we take a look at those types of myths around the resurrection and why none of them make any sense. So with that, let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, thank you so much that, that your word is true. And thank you that when we put it under the microscope, when we prod and, and poke and, and test and discern and use logic, it becomes even more clear that you are truly alive, risen from the dead. The grave could not hold you. And because you are alive, we are alive as well and will be alive with you forever. Thank you for saving us, Jesus, and thank you that our salvation doesn't rest on wishful thinking, but on the man, Jesus Christ, who lived and walked on the earth a perfect life in our place and then died on a cross taking our sin in our place. As real as you were and as real as the explosion of your church was in the first century, as real as those things are, is the reality that we're forgiven through your blood, through your body on the cross. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the security of our salvation, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, 
I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.